Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Midday. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Zikona Miso in studio with Amanda Machaka, Usani Matebula and Tabison Dima. Top stories on Africa Midday this hour. Somalia takes its border dispute with Kenya to top UN court. EU police mission in the DRC completes its mandate in Cuba to provide doctors to help tackle Ebola outbreak in West Africa. In your business news, IMF Deputy Managing Director begins his visit to Angola. And in your sport, Zimbabwe's bid to host 2017 AFCON receives a major boost. It's time now for our news with Amanda. Good afternoon. Over 160 migrants have drowned after their boat sank off the Libyan coast. According to reports quoting a naval commander, Ayub Kasim, some 36 people have been rescued, including a pregnant woman, and had been taken to hospital. Naval forces were alerted by local fishermen after seeing large numbers of bodies in the water. Police in the Ugandan capital Kampala have seized substantial amounts of explosives and suicide vests and raids on a suspected Al-Shabaab cell. Ugandan officials claim Al-Shabaab was planning an imminent attack. Police arrested 19 people in the operation on Saturday. Uganda urges the public to remain vigilant as it continues its investigation into the planned attack. Authorities say they have increased security at hotels and other key sites, including Entebbe International Airport, since making the arrests. The AIDS Healthcare Foundation has called on the African Union to do more to avert the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. In a letter addressed to the AU chairperson Mohamed Old Abdelaziz, the international non-governmental organization outlines strategic interventions it says could help bring the virus under control. About 2,400 people have died in the outbreak out of the 4,700 cases reported since the outbreak emerged in March. Advocacy Manager at the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, Larisa Klesi, I think the AIDS Healthcare Foundation's primary concern at this point is that the world response to the Ebola crisis has been incredibly slow. We lost one of our doctors, Dr. Khan, in August to Ebola. And what we have seen is that conditions on the ground are really, really dire. They're not good at all. And the world response has been incredibly slow. So what we have realized is that possibly we need African solutions to an African problem. So rather than relying on the World Health Organization, No South Africans have yet officially been identified as being hurt or killed in the building collapse in Lagos, Nigeria. This is despite at least one South African saying a relative in Lagos has been out of contact since the collapse. At least 42 people were killed. Evangelist Tibi Joshua was holding a service when the structure caved in. Members of the South African mission in Lagos are still checking whether any South Africans were involved. South Africa's international relations spokesperson Nelson Khwet. The closing ceremony of this European Union. At the moment, the latest report we have from the mission is that uh, they were not able to find any South African citizens who were injured or who may have perished after the building collapsed. The officials are still working with authorities on the ground and we are receiving calls from members of the public here in South Africa who are worried about the safety of their relatives who are in Nigeria and we are assisting at giving information to the relatives in South Africa. 
And finally, British Prime Minister David Cameron will again hit the campaign trail in Scotland in a last-ditch attempt to persuade voters to say no to independence from the United Kingdom. Scots will head to the polls in Thursday's referendum amid predictions the vote could go either way. Cameron is expected to tell Scots they will, there will be no going back if they vote to end more than 300 years of union with the rest of the UK. Scottish First Minister Alex Salmond is also set to meet business leaders in a bid to highlight the economic opportunities independence could bring. Channel Africa News. Africa This is Africa Midday. Time has just gone five minutes after one o'clock Central African time. This is Africa Midday. The Somali government has filed an application at the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, over the maritime border dispute accusing neighboring Kenya of illegally occupying its territorial waters in the Indian Ocean. This dispute has been simmering for the last five years, keeping away potential investors because of lack of legal clarity over who owns a potential offshore oil and gas reserves. According to our Nairobi correspondent, Mwagi Konyo, the area in dispute is the most lucrative fishing area in the world and huge oil and gas deposits. According to Kenya's Attorney General, Nairobi government has already been notified of the suit by the Somali government but has not been served with the court documents regarding the matter. But according to reliable sources here in Nairobi, the Somali government has taken the dispute to the International Court of Justice of the United Nations, ICJ, in order to determine on the basis of the international law the complete course of the single maritime boundary dividing all the maritime area pertaining to Somalia and to Kenya in the Indian Ocean, including the continental shelf beyond 2,000 nautical miles. The Somali government wants the maritime border in the Indian Ocean to continue southeast in line with the land border, while the Kenyan government wants the sea border to go east in a straight line, which would give it more sea territory. But following a breakdown in diplomatic negotiations between the two neighboring countries, the Somali government has now taken the dispute to the UN highest judicial body for determination of the dispute. The Somali government has now requested the International Court of Justice to rule on the matter on the basis of the international law of the sea. And according to an official of the Somali government, Jamal Mohammed, Somalia is strategically located as the longest coast in Africa with huge oil and gas resources. Somalia is strategically located. We have the longest coast in Africa. Uh, there are, we have uh, mineral resources as well as oil and, and other. Not to be uh, found, but uh, it is there in uh, potential. And that's why oil companies and international community and some countries have looked in their own interests. And that's why we've never seen any uh, real concrete evidence for international community to come in united in Somali courts and solve it. But Kenyan authorities here in Nairobi maintain that the issue was earlier discussed by the two governments and had agreed on the continental shelf maritime boundary. The agreement was deposited at the Law of the Sea Commission in New York. But later Somali parliament rejected the agreement and refused to ratify the agreement. Consequently, the president of Somalia wrote to the Kenyan government withdrawing the agreement. Similarly, Kenyan authorities have written to the Law of the Sea Commission and insisted that Kenya should be recognized as having delineated a continental maritime boundary with Somalia pending determination of the dispute. 
Nairobi authorities have already awarded exploration contracts to international farms, despite uncertainty over which country holds the legal ownership of the areas. The dispute has been simmering over the years, keeping investors away because of lack of legal clarity over ownership of the potential offshore oil and gas reserves. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. The European Union Police Mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, UPOL DRC, has completed its seven-year mandate in that country. The closing ceremony took place last week in the DRC's capital, Kinshasa. Jean-Noba Mweze has more from Kinshasa. The closing ceremony of this European Union police mission's activities here in the Democratic Republic of Congo has brought together hundreds of people. Among those who have witnessed such a big event were these country's authorities, such as the DRC Minister of Home Affairs, Richard Muyes Mangesmas, some delegates from the European Union states and other partners, both national and international, who have been supporting the UPOL activities here. Indeed, this mission that was launched here in July 2007 has been supporting the efforts of the country's authorities for the last seven years in order to reform the Congolese National Police, well known as the PNC. The police service here in the Democratic Republic of Congo has been facing a double challenge for long, including to fulfill its traditional mission of ensuring the security of population on one hand and on the other hand to reform and restructure the whole institution. But up to now, the PNC has benefited so much from the UPOL DRC that has used its time and means to support the establishment of a civilian and professional police force that respects human rights and works in cooperation with the civil society. The mission has helped as well to improve the interaction between the police service and the criminal justice system. This has then contributed to fight sexual violence, impunity and human rights abuse in this country. And as the European Union police mission is expected to officially end its activities here on this September 30th, the advisor and charge d'affaires of the Portuguese embassy in this country who was part of the closing ceremony believes a lot has been achieved and calls on Congolese authorities to continue in the same way. João Lopez. I think it's a very great challenge for the Congolese community and for the Congolese people uh, that um, this uh, reform of the um, Congolese National Police is on the way. And I think it's a very, a very remarkable occasion now that uh, UPOL's mission has, uh, has ended. But uh, it's a, a great opportunity um, to, to continue what has been achieved uh, until here, but to continue and, uh, and uh, particularly in the areas of the formation of uh, police officers and um, the sensibilization of questions like uh, sexual violence and uh, things like that. The European Union Police Democratic Republic of Congo mission, Yopol DRC, that is just ending its activities here, was made up of international experts including police, criminal justice and civilian experts. This Yopol DRC follows on from the UPOL Kinshasa, the European Union's very first civilian mission to have been deployed here in Africa. Jean-Noël Bamwezi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. 
12 minutes after 1 o'clock, the report by uh, the um, Mwagi Konyo, they're bringing the time now to 12 minutes after 1 o'clock here on Africa Midday. South Sudan government claims that rebels are carrying out massive mobilization in preparation for prolonged fighting. The claim which has been denied by the rebels comes at a time when peace talks between the rebels and the government are expected to resume in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. James Chimanyula reports. With less than four weeks remaining before the expiry of the IGAD deadline for South Sudan government and rebels allied to former Vice President Riek Machar to sign a permanent peace and power sharing agreement or risk sanctions, the Juba government is claiming that rebels are preparing for prolonged battles. The claim was made in the capital Juba by South Sudan's army spokesman Philip Panyangagwer. Our observation in the field is that most of the rebels' commanders are engaged in an intensive mobilization and uh, they are gathering their forces in particular areas uh, with intention to launch an attack uh, which uh, their leaders uh, promise that they will uh, launch all of our operations if their terms of agreement are not accepted. But Army spokesman Philip Panyangagwer emphasized that the government army is maintaining its operations in contested places north of the capital, Juba. We are respecting operation in Unity State, uh, particularly in, uh, in Bantiu uh, areas of Mayom and Paryang, around uh, oil fields and then areas of uh, northern Upper Nile, uh, the same in oil areas. The quicker the peace comes, the better for our people. And uh, we are concerned uh, that uh, the people of these regions of uh, all Upper Nile uh, continue to suffer, and uh, that is a shame uh, on all of us. And uh, we hope uh, peace will come soon. The peace that Aguirre is speaking about has been elusive since January this year when the government signed a ceasefire agreement with the rebels in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. The agreement has been violated several times as the on and off peace talks resumed and collapsed. As Aguirre claimed that rebels are mobilizing in preparation for big battles, the peace talks were expected to resume in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, yesterday Sunday. Aguirre's claims have, however, been vehemently denied by rebel spokesman Luluruai Koang. Speaking from an undisclosed location in South Sudan, Koang said, and I quote, claims made by army spokesman Philip Aguirre are a figment of his imagination, end of quote. Koang said rebel forces are respecting the current ceasefire, adding that they will remain in their strongholds without, as he put it, firing a shot. Already the Regional Intergovernmental Authority on Development, known in short as IGAD, has given the Sudanese government and rebels up to October 10th, that is next month, to sign a permanent peace agreement or risk having unspecified sanctions imposed on them. South Sudan has been unstable since December 15 last year when President Salva Kiir claimed that several politicians had plotted to topple his government, a claim that the politicians denied before they were taken to court where they were freed on instructions of the very South Sudan President Salva Kiir. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula.
Time has just gone 16 minutes after 1 o'clock Central African time. You're tuned into Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, officials say that uh, rescue operations at the collapsed building of the Synagogue Church of All Nations in Okoton, Lagos, where 40 people died, continues. 130 other people were rescued. The incident, which occurred on Friday afternoon, saw the five-story building, which was under construction, collapse, burying hundreds of people in the rubble. To discuss this further, we're now joined on the line from Abuja by Ben Shimang, who's the Assistant News Director at The Voice of Nigeria. Good day, Ben, and thank you for for joining us here on Africa Midday. Thank you very much. Welcome. Now, Ben, what's the latest? Do we have any idea at this stage as to what caused this collapse? Well, the latest still remains that um, uh, the uh, emergency agencies are, are still uh, doing some uh, searching. They're clearing the debris and, of course, uh, over 40 uh, bodies have been uh, taken from that uh, building. As to what caused the, 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 the collapse, um, there is this allegation that the, the building was actually a two-story building, mm. but suddenly uh, they had to do some other floors on top, two more. Therefore, the foundation Ish. couldn't uh, house the, the, the entire building in terms of weight. That is an allegation. Mm. Now, Outside that, we're hearing that the church, yes, we're hearing the church members saying that there was a, a, a plane that hovered around and suddenly the building collapsed. <laughs> Again, people are waiting to see that kind of a plane when there was no bomb blast or nothing. Mm. Do we know the death toll? Where does the death toll stand at this stage, Ben? Well, uh, some people are putting it at uh, 40, some are saying 44. But there are more of the injured uh, persons, bearing in mind that uh, it, it provided a kind of an accommodation uh, for worshippers, for visitors, who are not uh, immediate residents of uh, Lagos, but who would always want to, to go there to see the, the, the man of God there, T.D. Joshua. Uh, so that is the figure, as for figure. Mm. Now, as it stands at the moment, um, have the officials said anything about there being still some bodies that are trapped there in the rubble? Well, I didn't get that question very well, but what I know is that uh, the bodies that have been uh, recovered have been taken to, to, to some hospitals, uh, for, for, uh, to, to mortuaries, so that uh, their rightful owners will come, collect them, and give them a rightful uh, burial. And those who sustain injuries are already in some hospitals, some government-owned hospitals, some private. The Labour State Governor, uh, Babashola Raji, has, has gone there, and he's been able to, to meet with the, with the uh, owner of the church, E.B. Joshua, and some other officials. And again, in terms of uh, the building code, the Lagos State Government is also going there to, to ascertain the kind of foundation, the kind of building, those who did the design, and those who supervise the building, whether it was approved by government. So mm-hmm. that will be taken care of. Now, just before we let you go, Ben, the Synagogue Church of All Nations is headed, of course, by, as you mentioned, and I quote you, calling him the man of God, Prophet T.B. Joshua, who has followers across Africa and around the world. Now, has he said anything since this incident took place? Well, uh, all he's he's been saying is a kind of a defense that um, the building has been there very solid. uh, Nothing bad has happened for years. 
uh, only for this suddenly that there was an aeroplane that came, hovered around, and as soon as it left, that um, the, 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 the building collapsed. And uh, they are also even saying that they have uh, footages of the aeroplane uh, cameras. But again, many people say that that place is located in the route of aeroplanes. Aeroplanes fly there well at entering Lagos. They mm-hmm. take over and pass their way going out of Lagos. So it's not strange that aeroplanes will pass in the area, uh, mm-hmm. around the, uh, the area. But whatever it is, investigations will definitely bring out the truth of the matter. Well, thank you very much for giving us an account of what's happening right now. Obviously, uh, we don't have all the answers, as you've also said, that uh, the officials are still trying to um, uh, get uh, hold of the situation and have it under control. But thank you so much for joining us here on Africa Midday. We'll definitely be speaking to you again to get an account as more and more information comes in as to what could have caused this uh, really horrific collapse. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Right. Thank you very much, Vipisa. That was Ben Shimang, Assistant News Director at The Voice of Nigeria, joining us on the line from Abuja. A very tragic uh, situation that took place there in that uh, church and that building collapsing. He says at the moment they're still not clear as to the number of uh, deaths that have been recorded, but um, he does believe that officials are still trying to recover some bodies from the rubble at this time. Time has just gone 22 minutes after 1 o'clock Central African time. My, main, my name, rather, is Zikona Miso, and this is Africa Midday. Africa, Africa Midday. Midday. This is Africa Midday. South Sudan has become the latest country to ratify the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. This convention, adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1979, defines what constitutes discrimination against women and commits member states to settling up an agenda for action to support them. Maria Pai is the Minister of Gender and Social Development in the Central Equatorial State, one of South Sudan's 10 states and at the seat of national government. Speaking to UN Radio's Regina Gawley, the minister stressed the importance of implementing the convention up to grassroots level. I'm very happy because this is what we have been campaigning for all the time. We have been campaigning when we gathered as women. We really talk about this because without this law, it becomes very difficult even for us to initiate programs that protect women. But all this time, the government of South Sudan was so keen to listen to us and also approve all our programs that uh, focus on women protection. Now with this convention, which is ratified by uh, our government, I would like to congratulate the, the South Sudan National uh, Assembly for approving or for passing this uh, convention into law. Do you think with the ratification of United Nations Convention on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, will this now be able to protect the women? I think it's really a forward issue that it can work when we are committed as women. We are committed to see how these women can be protected. And the first thing is for it to be implemented, it's first for us to enlighten our women up to the local level. We have to work very hard now. The first thing for me as a state mm. is now to enlighten the women of Central Equatorial State on this convention. Mm. They were not understanding the convention because it was at the high level. 
But as it has come to our national level here, I think it is now our work as Ministry of Gender to make sure that these uh, resolutions are taken to our women at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. They are sensitized and we, sen- we sensitize all the stakeholders to this convention and then we see how it can work. Mm-hmm. But for me, it can work because it is ratified by, by our government and even when this convention was not ratified, we have already gone ahead in implementing some of the resolutions. Mm-hmm. Usually there are workshops held in the capitals and in the headquarters of, let me say, Payam or counties, and many women do not know about this convention, how are you going to make sure that they know about it? What we are going to do is, for me as Central Equatorial State, I'm going to take this resolution and then bring it to our level, to our women caucus. And then the women caucus will also look at this, and then we develop a program of how fast this convention has to be translated to the local language so that women understand it at the local language. Because if we are talking about protection, we are not talking only for women who are educated. We are talking for all women, whether they are educated or they are not educated. So for them to know that they are protected, I think it is good to translate this uh, resolution or this convention into the local language so that women first know. When they know it, they will know they are right. They are now will work all of us together to make sure that women are protected. Yeah, people always think that forms of violence must be like rap, beating women. What other forms do you think can be added to these ones that can really uh, make women right or being discriminated? I think those ones are like highlights, but the real issues are there, that they are there within this convention because it's talking of all forms of discrimination, all forms. So uh, the convention is talking about mm-hmm. all. In our context here, we have some which are not considered there because there are different cultures in South Sudan. So we see that some of the cultures are really victimized women very seriously. And you see, maybe those things are not included there. But for us, when we translate this thing into the local languages, women will understand, and then women also will realize that some of the cultures are working against women. And uh, we need to eliminate some of the cultures that works against women. We have rich cultures. They are very fine. We like them. But those harmful ones, we have really to do away with them. So the discrimination against women sometimes at different levels. Well, that is Mary Apai, the Minister of the Social Development in Central Equatorial State, one of South Sudan's 10 states, speaking there to UN Radio's Regina Gole. Bring the time now to 27 minutes after 1 o'clock Central African time. Amanda Machaga will be joining us shortly for our headlines. The announcement by the Cuban government to provide health professionals to help tackle the Ebola outbreak in West Africa has been welcomed by the UN agency. According to the World Health Organization, there are now more than 4,000 people infected by Ebola and over 2,000 have died in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. The professionals being offered by Cuba include nurses, doctors, epidemiologists and specialists in infection control as well as intensive care will be concentrated in Sierra Leone. Reports. At a virtual press conference on Friday, the Minister of Public Health of Cuba, Dr. Roberto Morales Ojeda, said the assistance that his government is offering will be through WHO. We will cooperate with a brigade of 165 collaborators, consisting of 62 doctors and 103 nurses. 
All of them have more than 15 years of professional experience and have worked in other countries facing natural and epidemiological disasters and also have worked in medical cooperation missions, 23 of them more than once. The head of WHO, Dr. Margaret Chen, said the provision of the health professionals will make a significant difference in Sierra Leone. She said that although money and materials are important, those alone cannot stop the Ebola transmission. Human resources is most important, and especially the needs for compassionate doctors and nurses who will know how to comfort patients despite the barriers of wearing PPE suit and working in very demanding conditions. Cuba is world famous for its ability to train outstanding doctors and nurses, and it is world famous for its generosity in solidarity with countries on the route to progress. Dr. Chan also thanked the many countries that have already been providing support to WHO and other UN agencies, and most importantly, to the three affected countries. She added, however, that more action is needed to respond to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. We need to search at least two to four times in order to catch up with the outbreaks that are happening fast in these three countries. I hope the announcement by the Cuban government will stimulate more countries to search their support. On the 28th of August, the World Health Organization released its Ebola response roadmap, highlighting the needs for a massively scaled-up response to support the affected countries. Derek Mbata, United Nations. Well, that report by Derek brings us now to our time for our headlines with Amanda Machaga. Thank you, Skona. Good afternoon. Over 160 migrants have drowned after their boat sank off the Libyan coast. Police in the Ugandan capital Kampala seized substantial amounts of explosives and suicide vests in raids on a suspected Al-Shabaab cell, and the South African Communist Party calls for a review of the Oscar Pistorius verdict. And those are news headlines. Africa, Africa. This is Africa Midday. The AIDS Healthcare Foundation has called on the African Union to do more to avert the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, but more on that a little bit later on here on the show. There's a possibility that the National Prosecuting Authority of South Africa, the NPA, might appeal the culpable homicide verdict ruled by Judge Tokozile Masipa in the case of Paralympian star Oscar Pistorius. Pistorius shot dead his model girlfriend Riva Steenkamp last Valentine's Day through the locked door, toilet door of his home. The matter has been postponed to the 13th of next month for sentencing. The athlete says he mistook her for an intruder. South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority has expressed its disappointment at the verdict, but also welcome the decision. For more on this, Tudongobeni spoke to Dr. Llewellyn Kerr-Lewis, who's the president of the Law Society of the Northern Provinces here in South Africa. Not one of the parties is allowed to appeal before the matter has been finalized. In other words, it's completely finished as far as the court of first instance is concerned. In highly exceptional circumstances, will any higher court listen to an appeal where the matter is still pending in the lower court? 
therefore, before the sentencing is finalised, nothing, absolute nothing is going to happen, first of all. Second of all, both parties have the prerogative to appeal against the judgment of the court of first instance. In other words, against Judge Matsipa's ruling. That being said, there are a couple of rules. If you want to do so, you've got 14 days to seek, in other words, apply for leave to appeal before the same judge. And that is only after the sentencing has been handed down. If you're unsuccessful with that application, then you must seek what we call a petition to the Supreme Court of Appeal. The defense is allowed to appeal against both the verdict and or the sentence, or both, whilst the state is only entitled to appeal against a legal issue. In other words, the state is not allowed to appeal against a factual finding by the judge. Only on legal principles and legal issues are they allowed to take the matter on appeal. And that's basically the rules involved. With the judgment by Judge Masiba, we've seen a lot of legal experts uh, second-guessing her decision, her judgment, saying it shouldn't have happened. Now, in, in your years of practicing, has it happened that a lot of people would complain against a certain judgment by the judge? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what we have here is typical of the legal phenomena. In hardly any instance, one of the parties is always 100% satisfied with an outcome of a matter. That's why we have higher courts. That's why we still have a hierarchy in our court system that says if you're not satisfied in your first term and around, you are allowed under certain circumstances to approach a higher authority to revisit the whole issue. And that is part and parcel of our judicial system. That's why we have constitutional institutions and why we've got a Supreme Court of Appeal and ultimately also a constitutional court. So if any party at any stage feel aggravated or aggrieved by an outcome on the assumption that there are certain minimum requirements being complied with, you are entitled to revisit the whole issue on a later stage. And, I mean, that is sound. Nobody ever said, that everybody can always be right if Judge Masipa have faulted somewhere along the line, either on a factual matter or on a judicial aspect, then it's for that party concerned to try and convince the higher court that she has done so. Obviously, by saying that, one must not be disrespectful towards the judgment of Judge Masipa because ultimately she was the presiding judge and she had autonomy and the prerogative and obviously also the discretion to make the findings which she did. A court of appeal will only intervene with the findings of a lower court if that person, in other words, Judge Masipa, was probably wrong in her findings. If not, she will definitely get the benefit of the doubt because, after all, she was the person that had first-hand experience of the evidence, the demeanor of the witnesses, and so on before her. As we await for sentencing, what happens, especially with the two parties, the defense and the state, and also, obviously, the judge is preparing her presentation for sentencing? Well, the judge is not really going to do anything at this stage. She has to wait until the evidence is in front of her. So what will typically happen is the matter has now been postponed. On the return date, in other words, the 13th of October this year, when the parties are in front of the judge again, the state will have the prerogative to prove previous convictions, which we know does not exist. After that, the defense will start to lead evidence in mitigation. That they can typically do by calling witnesses, by calling experts, by calling the accused himself, if that is what they want to do, or they can purely make submissions from the bench. 
obviously any witness that's called by the defense might be cross-examined by the state. Once that is done, the state has then the prerogative on their side to do the same. They can lead evidence in aggravating, in other words, to convince the court to impose a more severe punishment if you'd like. They can call witnesses, they can call the family members of the deceased, they can call experts, they can call a number of people. Nobody knows in advance how many witnesses will be called by either party, but both parties will have the opportunity to cross-examine whoever is called. Once that is done, both parties will have, once again, the opportunity to address the court one way or another, either orally or, once again, by submitting written heads of argument, like we've seen pre the verdict stadium. If that is done, then obviously the court will only then scrutinize all the evidence, take that into consideration, once again look at relevant case law to compare apples with apples, if you like, look at Section 276 of our Criminal Procedure Act, which explains to the court what alternative sentencing options are available to the court, and only then will we then expect final sentence by the judge. So at this stage, there's nothing for the judge really to do but to wait until the evidence is once again before her, before she must attend to it. Remember, the sentencing phase is in itself. Let's call it then a trial, a mini-trial, if you like. With that said, this trial, we shouldn't expect it to end any time this year. Correct. I won't go that far. For example, assume that the state and defense can finalize their evidence in support of sentencing for the first two weeks of the set-down period from the 13th of October until whatever date follows that. Then let's, for argument's sake, say the judge needs two weeks to consider. So then we might be inclined to see finalization of the matter in the court of first instance. In other words, before Judge Pasipa before the end of November. In other words, we might still see the finalization of this matter in the Pretoria High Court at least before the end of this year. But that does not include any issue with regard to a possible appeal that might be forthcoming from either side. That is Dr. Llewellyn Kerr-Lewis, who's the president of the Law Society of the Northern Provinces, on the line to Tuto Ngobeni, bringing the time now almost 20 minutes before the top of the hour. The AIDS Healthcare Foundation has called on the African Union to do more to avert the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. In a letter addressed to the AU chairperson, Mohamed Old Abdel Aziz, the international non-governmental organization outlined strategic interventions that it says could help bring the virus under control. Researchers predict that about 1.2 million people will die from the disease in the next six months. Six months is the minimum time the World Health Organization projects will be necessary to contain the epidemic. For more on this, Elizabeth Ledicha spoke to Larissa Klazinga, who's the advocacy manager at the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. I think the AIDS Healthcare Foundation's primary concern at this point is that the world response to the Ebola crisis has been incredibly slow. We lost one of our doctors, Dr. Khan, in August to Ebola. And what we have is that conditions on the ground are really, really dire. They're not good at all, and the world response has been incredibly slow. So what we have realized is that possibly we need African solutions to an African problem. So rather than relying on the World Health Organization to save the day, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation called on the African Union and African countries to ensure that our response is stepped up. Larissa, talking about stepping up Africa's response, what needs to happen now? How can Africa respond to this crisis better? The bottom line is supplies are needed urgently, particularly personal protection equipment. And I'm sure you've all seen photographs of people walking around dressed in what looks like alien suits with face masks and gloves. Those are really, really important to stop the spread of this 
pandemic and to ensure that healthcare workers are able to effectively treat people with Ebola without contracting the disease themselves. Unprecedented numbers of doctors and nurses have died thus far. Over 120 have succumbed to Ebola while trying to treat people. So supplies are critically needed, doctors are critically needed, and basic supplies like water, chlorine to help decontaminate equipment. The very basic food isn't getting in because all of the air traffic has been shut down to the affected countries, particularly Syria and Liberia and Guinea. And it means that people are not getting clean water, they're not getting food, there aren't enough isolation beds. Honestly, there's so much that needs to be done. But to start off with, just ensuring that healthcare workers have got the equipment that they need to be able to address this pandemic and save people. Now, you touched base on the issue of the international response to Ebola being inadequate. Why, in your view, has this response not been faster and perhaps more robust? Two issues. Firstly, Ebola has always been very localized in the past. It's never really spread from quite rural areas into more urban areas. So I think the world underestimated the spread of the disease and how quickly it would spread which is unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it before, so we're simply unprepared. The second issue is that this is an African disease. As we all know, the world is very slow to address crises in developing countries. If this had, you know, if Ebola had broken out in the middle of a developed country in Europe or in the United States, I think the response would have been very, very different. But as we all know, sometimes the world can be quite slow to respond when the people dying are poor people. Apart from advocating for more efforts against the virus, what has been the role of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation in this outbreak? Well, while waiting for the world to respond, what we did is we mobilized our own resources, and thus far we've donated almost half a million dollars worth of equipment, which we've ensured is shipped into the country by any means possible. So we're actually trying to supply people on the ground. We work in MSF which has done an amazing job and really has been the organization that's responsible for responding to this rather than the World Health Organization, sadly. So our organization reaching out to organizations on the ground, Red Cross, and working with state hospitals to try and help them to address the issue. As I mentioned previously, one of our doctors, Dr. Khan, who was the Sierra Leone director for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, died in early August while treating patients that had Ebola. That's Larissa Klazinga, Advocacy Manager at the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, speaking there to Elizabeth Ledikla. Bring the time now, almost time for Wisani to be joining us here on Africa Midday for our economics update. But before we do that, rains lashed Kashmir in India yesterday, hampering relief operations in sunken cities and villages. And despite all odds, a cont- contingent of women in fatigues are out in the murky water saving lives, offering food or medicine in the Himalayan Valley of Death. Rana Sen has more. The Indian military, disaster management teams and police have plucked out more than 190,000 people so far from marooned homes since last week when the century's worst floods submerged India's revolt-hit Kashmir. More than 200 people have died and the toll is likely to rise. And some 200,000 others need urgent help. 
flight lieutenant Shibamjit Sandhu said military women were toiling as hard as the men to save fellow Indians from a watery grave. This is a great example where the women are walking shoulder to shoulder with their men for providing relief to the person, to the most needy. So this is one example where we can say that women are nowhere behind everyone. Fly left in Deepika, she was on leave to Goa. She surrendered her leave and came. Before that, just to help the persons over here. Because she has a guilt feeling because being in Srinagar, being in the Defence Forces, she surrendered her leave and she came back. Sandhu steers a helicopter virtually 20 hours a day, despite being pelted with stones by people who say the government has bungled. Flight Lieutenant Deepika Roy said her female comrades have taken key missions on the ground. Comrade Nikhila with me is also a communication officer. She is working day and night to restore the communication here. Also, uh, many of the women officers are working in loading offloading duties. That is, uh, the material that is coming from different places is loaded here and it's being distributed for JNK police, JNK government and for uh, uh, for other people also. Soldiers on the water-filled streets are grateful to the women in uniform and Lieutenant General K.H. Singh has all the reasons to cheer as only with their help he's able to nurse flood victims of Kashmir. Everyone who is in our knowledge and also who have come to us for help have been given water, medical supplies, medical treatment and also restoration of electricity and water supplies in various towns and villages. We are helping out, uh, the army is help, helping out in coordination with the civil administration. And the state's under-fire chief minister Omar Abdullah has all the reasons to be angry with those who are targeting the men and women risking their lives for others. Expressing anger by sloganeering, by shouting, by even burning effigies, that is something I completely understand and I wouldn't grudge at all. But trying to bring people in from elsewhere to pelt stones and to disrupt the rescue operation is something that I don't understand. I've told the police to aggressively patrol areas where this is happening. But despite the valiant effort, Kashmir is now a valley of despair and even a whisper sparks panic among many of those who have lost everything in the floods. For Newsbreak, this is Rana Sen reporting from Srinagar, Kashmir. It's time now for our economics update with Wisani Matibula. Thanks, Ikona. Business leaders and policymakers are gathering in Rwanda's capital, Kigali, for a three-day business conference which begins today. This is to explore ways that can lead to higher exports by small businesses. Conference participants will also participate in facilitated business networking sessions with companies from overseas interested in doing business in Africa. The World Export Development Forum is organized by the International Trade Center, the only United Nations organization with an exclusive focus on small businesses. Meanwhile, trade has resumed at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange after a system failure caused a two-hour stoppage earlier today. The boss has reopened its auction call session. The JSE has been hit by problems with the connection between Johannesburg and London in recent years, sparking, sparking system glitches that forced their trading to stop several times 
one network meltdown in 2010 caused a six-hour halt. In the year 2012, the Bost launched a revamped trading platform to attract more business from the hedge funds. The new system is based in Johannesburg, and like its predecessor, that was housed in London. With a market value of nearly $900 billion, the JSE is Africa's deepest and most sophisticated equities markets. IMF Deputy Managing Director Nayosiki Shinohara is paying a two-day visit to Angola starting today. The visit is aimed at boosting bilateral financial cooperation. On August the 29th, the Executive Board of the International Monetary Fund concluded the Article 6 consultation with Angola. After a strong growth last year, estimated 6.8%, Angola's economic growth this year is projected at 3.9% despite a decline in oil output. Phil Nelo reports from Luanda. Authorities of Angola and the board of the International Monetary Fund, IMF, are starting today negotiations aiming at boosting bilateral financial cooperation. Thus, IMF's Deputy Managing Director, Nayuki Shinohara, is paying a two-day visit to Angola starting this Monday. Mr. Shinohara will meet senior Angolan government political and economic officials, as well as will pay a visit to Don Bosco community in one of the poorest suburbs of the capital, Luanda. Egypt's tourism industry could fully recover by the end of next year if regional turmoil does not spread to the Arab world's biggest country. Egyptian Tourism Minister Hisham Zazou says tourist numbers will rise up to 10% this year and recover to pre-uprising levels of 14.7 million visitors next year. Sea resorts and ancient sites are the backbone of Egyptian tourism industry. The industry is estimated at $12.5 billion a year. Let's look at the markets. The dollar trading at 11 South African rands at 8.93 Botswana Pulas and 6.11 Zambian Quaches. Also trading at 0.60 to the British pound and at 0.75 to the euro. Moving on now to commodities. Gold, $1,233. Platinum, $1,366. Brent crude oil, $96.47 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Thank you, Ms. Sunny. It's time now for our sports update with Tabiso Ndima. Sports now with Tabiso Ndima. Thanks, Ikona. The South African Sports and Confederation and Olympics Committee will consider Oscar Pistorius' participation in international competitions at a meeting this coming Thursday. This is the word of SASCO President Gideon Sam. Pistorius was found guilty of culpable homicide on Friday for shooting dead his girlfriend River Camp on Valentine's Day last year. Sam says the Olympic body will not make any official comments about Pistorius' eligibility eligibility to represent the country until after the meeting. On Friday, the International Paralympic indicated Pistorius would be eligible 
to compete once he had served any punishment. Meanwhile, Athletic South Africa President Alex Kosana says he would not comment until Pistorius has been formally sentenced. On to Athletics News. Team Africa finished third at the two-day IAAF Intercontinental Cup in Morocco, the hosts were made up of top athletes selected from many countries, among others included Botswana, Zambia, South Africa, Nigeria, Cameroon, Kenya, Ethiopia, Egypt and Ghana. Team Europe were the overall winners beating Team America into second position while Asia Pacific finished third. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi wraps up Team South Africa showing on the track. Returning to the stadium in which she won the African title last month, while champion Kenya's Eunice Som topped the 800 meters race as compatriot and Commonwealth silver winner Isaiah Kowach ended the season with a win at the Grand Estate in the men's category, while leader and diamond race winner Kenyan Jairus Birech finished off his stellar steeplechase season with another victory in the Grand Stadium where he won at the African Championships last month as compatriot Caleb Ndiku also wrapped his fantastic season with the 3000 meters gold the first win ever for team africa in the continental cup team africa won the bronze behind the world cup winners team of europe as the americas placed second as the top two-day competition ended on sunday in marrakesh morocco after a topsy-turvy race it was jagger who led from the african rival coming into the final straight in eight minutes 13.18 seconds but the north american record holder couldn't hold on to his advantage and had to settle for a second place in eight minutes 14.08 seconds the first american top three finisher in the event since henry marshall in 1985, Qatari athlete Abu Bakr Ali Hamal was third for Asia Pacific in 8 minutes 17.27 seconds, while Birech's teammate Chalabello ran a personal best of 8 minutes 24.48 seconds for a fourth place. The men's 3000 meters was another contest that went according to the playbook with Kenyan Diku collecting a convincing victory for Africa. The Kenyan powered away from Azerbaijani Haile Ibrahimo to take the win unchallenged in 7 minutes 52.64 seconds. Ndiku tussled with Ibrahimov and Barini of Ethiopian descent Aweke Ayelu but when he broke only European silver medalist Ibrahimov gave chase. His persistence awarded with a run-up finish in 7 minutes 53.14 seconds. Niel Amos and Mohamed Aman lived up to expectation winning Africa 1-2 in men's 800 meters race. In football news, Aminu Maigari, the president of Nigeria Football Federation, has dismissed media reports that his organization will hold an elective congress this coming Saturday. Speaking to Channel Africa's Tony Ubani from Abuja in Nigeria, Maigari says they will meet on Saturday in Wari State to approve the date and venue for the elections. As far as the election and the two congresses are concerned, I have made the agenda clear that the executive committee will propose to the congress a roadmap, I can confirm to you that the first extraordinary general assembly will take place on September 20 in Ware Delta State. He explained also that the date has been proposed for the elective congress, which is still tentative until approved by the general assembly. Zimbabwe's bid to host the 2017 CAF Africa Cup of Nations finals received a boost following the commitment by two ministries to support the 
Venture in Cabinet. The Minister of Sport and Culture, Andrew Langa, and the Minister of Hospitality and Tourism, Walter Msembi, have both pledged to give the bid backing for much-needed government guarantees. The Zimbabwe Football Association are considering replacing Libya, who have withdrawn from hosting the event due to security reasons. Initially, Libya was supposed to host the 2013 tournament, but chose not to host, instead swapping places with South Africa for that event. Meanwhile, the Confederation of African Football has given all countries bidding to host the event until the 30th of September to submit their bids. That's a sport at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to Africa Weekday. Recapping our top stories this hour on Africa Midday, Somalia takes its border dispute with Kenya to the top UN court and IMF Deputy Managing Director begins his visit to Angola. Well, that's how we wrap it up here on Africa Midday on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. For myself, Zikon, Amiso and the rest of the team, thank you so much for listening. We leave you now with the sounds of Letambulu. This one is titled Nomalizo.